0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah chapter 31, a chapter I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. A chapter that uh, we're going to spend some time with. It's tough to get through in a single session particularly a communion session, but how powerful to deal with communion. Much of this chapter addresses, or Jesus addresses this chapter in the communion service he conducts with his disciples on the night in which he's betrayed. And so we want to understand this and kind of get a a better sense of what was happening there in that upper room that sometimes I think is missed sometimes I think is lost. And when it gets missed, then uh, confusion arises in uh, kind of blurring the lines between Israel and the church. And we don't want to do that. We want to keep those lines as sharp and distinct as we, as we can. So, Jeremiah 31. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all of your grace and uh, the abundant provision, day by day, moment by moment. Father, it is indeed a blessing to be yours uh, as long as God and I shall be. And uh, God, you are going to be forever. You always have been. You always will be. And we will be forever, Father, because of our eternal life in Christ. And these are blessings uh, that are beyond, in some cases, they're just hard to describe. Uh, the the joy inexpressible. And yet we express them as much as we can and we thank you for them. We celebrate, we praise, we thank you. And we thank you for this day and we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. We're going to see some, some pretty powerful things in this chapter and I ask that you would give us that understanding. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will rebuild you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. For there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our god all right there's our first six verses and here's the loved with everlasting love and thank you for singing that hymn today i love that hymn and it is so beautiful to consider the nature of god's sacrificial unconditional love and what he does with it its expression in the chesed loving kindness that we have throughout the old testament and on into principles of grace and mercy in the new testament it is uh it is amazing Let's, uh, in fact, let me read three more verses, and then we'll start to get some points of study. Verses 7 through 9. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. O Lord, do save. All right. Verse 8, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country and will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child. Together a great company they will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. All right, so here's nine verses that we're going to tackle in the first few points of uh, of study here. Jeremiah is preaching restoration, which we might expect. He's done that before. But Jeremiah is preaching restoration not only to the southern kingdom of Judah, the kingdom that he, that's his peers, his contemporary that he's living in, not only to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is on the verge of captivity, 586 BC. But he's also preaching a promised restoration to the northern kingdom of Israel long after their captivity, which we date back to 722 BC. All right? You remember, the northern kingdom was swept away by the Assyrians. And it's the southern kingdom. The final two tribes is all that remains, really, of the, of the two Jewish kingdoms. This is what split apart after the reign of Solomon. In Solomon's son's generation, Rehoboam was king. But then ten tribes were ripped away from Rehoboam. And ten tribes in the north became known as the kingdom of Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel, as opposed to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so it is remarkable as Jeremiah is prophesying a return, he's already done that, he's promised a return after 70 years, we've had a 70-year prophecy that that limits the the damage done or limits the the time that they're going to spend in Babylon. But not only is, is Judah coming back and Benjamin coming back from Babylon, but the northern tribes are coming back as well. So don't believe any of the mythology you might read if there's some sensational book out there about the lost tribes of Israel, all right? There are no lost tribes and there weren't even any lost tribes in 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 the fifth century bc there weren't any lost tribes in the first century as uh, we have a a woman there named anna from the tribe of asher who is on hand when when the baby jesus is brought into the temple there are no lost tribes as we understand it all right Uh, so here's what we're dealing with and so these references to ephraim that's uh, kind of the heading for the northern kingdom, like Judah is the heading for the southern kingdom. Ephraim was the dominant tribe, the most populous tribe, the one that represents, uh, because of their, their, their bulk of their population and the influence that they had, uh, represents all ten of the northern tribes. Um, it also, by the way, represents Joseph because the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, became uh, tribes of themselves. There is no tribe of Joseph. Joseph gets double portion. Joseph has two tribes, in the person of Ephraim and in the person of of, uh, Manasseh. Keep that in mind as well, because uh, we have that dynamic that's at work here in this chapter, and you'll see that uh, momentarily. So loved with everlasting love, Drawn with chesed, loving kindness. And I tell you, the chesed is, if, is my all-time favorite Hebrew word, always has been since I started learning Hebrew words, always will be. I'm convinced I will never learn so much Hebrew that I will uh, bump chesed out of first place in my favorites list. It will constantly stay favorite no matter what. But the, uh, the loving kindness that speaks of his tender mercies, that speaks of what in the New Testament requires a, a variety of terms. It requires agape and elias and, and, uh, and a number of other um, Greek terms in order to fully embrace everything that the Old Testament describes under Chesed. Now in this, notice, Israel responds, and the responding by faith. And what we have stressed in this is the, is the weeping. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. And this, is, this demonstrates what it's going to take for the coming kingdom, what it's going to take for the millennium. And we, we understand today, because of the rejection of Christ in the first century, he cannot come in his second advent, until they say, blessed are they who come in the name of the Lord, right? Until they recite Psalm 118 with a positive volition. Until they sing their own Hosanna, their own, O Lord, do save, all right? Hosanna is just an Aramaic way of saying, do save, okay? And uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting, all right? And in some cases, it it creeps into some... Even some hymnody, it creeps into some song, like, do Lord, right? And remember me, or do save, okay? And this is the Aramaic call. And in first Advent, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem humbly on a colt, and the only ones singing Hosanna were the children. The religious leaders, the political leaders, the arrogant uh, uh, folks were rejecting him. They were telling the children to shut up, make them stop. (laughs) And Jesus says, they can't stop. If they stop, the stones will start singing, Say, Well, there will come a day when they will, and, and it's going to take tribulation to do it. It's going to take Antichrist and the mark of the beast and tribulation and hell on earth. The abyss will be emptied and demons will be flooding this place. And that kind of hardship, that kind of tribulation, which we saw last week, a day of wrath, a day unlike any day that there ever has been or ever will be again, that's what it's going to take to drive Israel to this point of repentance. So they will respond by faith, demonstrated by weeping and supplication, all right? So understand the supplication there, understand the positive volition, don't be distracted by the weeping, because emotionalism by itself doesn't count for nothing, but the, the true re- heart repentance and the prayers and the legitimate supplication, as we see, that is uh, is the issue. Remember, the the other the sixth century or the fifth century returnings right the um, sixth century returnings when when uh, uh, Persia allows them to return and they do return they return in waves they return with Ezra brings a group back and then Ezra brings a group back and then Nehemiah brings a group back but even with those three waves you're, it was only roughly ten percent of the population that returned back to the to the land. The bulk of the people were fat, dumb, and happy. They were, they were delighted to stay in Babylon. They were acclimating to Babylon. They were, they were um, thriving in Babylon. Their businesses were thriving. Their property was thriving. Their farms were productive. Things were going great in Babylon, and it was but a fraction of people who returned to Babylon. Uh, to live in the land why go back to that place that place is a waste that place has been damaged that place is and so those that were secularly minded stayed in babylon even by we get into the post into the christian era we get into the early centuries uh of the christian era there is still a dominant jewish uh population in babylon the the babylonian Talmud. where did that come from all right, because of the significant Jewish population that still lived in that land that did not return with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. By the way, this is my abbreviation. I call these the Zen returnings. All right, Z E N, the Zen returnings, and it has nothing to do with Buddhism or anything else. It's Zen, short for Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Okay, and I invented that. I created that. If anyone steals that, I get trademark. I, I'm going to sue them for copyright infringement. All right. Um, So those returnings to the land, they fulfilled the 70-year captivity prophecy, but not the worldwide eternal regathering prophecies. We want to be clear on that. And it's useful for us, too, by the way, because we have double hindsight. We have the hindsight of the Babylonian destruction, and we have the hindsight of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. All right, and so we can, with our double hindsight, we can look back and we can see that there was a Babylonian captivity, and that, and then there was a Roman captivity. Right, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and uh, the regathering into the land. There was not a a state of Israel after that until until the 20th century. Right, and so uh, we can we have the double hindsight, the capability to look back to see Zen returnings for what they were, and they were not eternal. If they were eternal, then, then Titus would have never destroyed Jerusalem, right? They were not eternal because Israel rejected their Christ in 33 AD and they crucified their Messiah. And so then we have a Roman dispersion in 70 AD and, uh, and we're just now seeing the first of two global regatherings, this one in unbelief, the next one in faith. The Jewish nation in the land now is there in unbelief. We understand that, All right and uh, other principles that apply. All right. Well, this is the content of verses 1 through 9. Then we have verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden. And they will never languish again. They will never languish again. Let me keep going. Let me get 13 and 14 while I'm here. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance And the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So every time I catch someone saying, my goodness, I try to stop them and say, no, it's not your goodness. (laughs) It's his goodness. It's Yahweh's goodness. Okay, leave your goodness out of it. Your goodness is irrelevant. My goodness is irrelevant. It's God's goodness that he achieves. All right, so here's verses 10 through 14. Gentile nations have lessons to learn. They should learn from watching the Jews in captivity, and then they also need to be humble and learn as they watch the Jews' restoration from captivity. It's supposed to be a monster object lesson, a a powerful object lesson, because if Yahweh deals with His people this way, how will He deal with you? (laughs) All right. Oh you Assyrians, oh you Babylonians, oh you Egyptians, oh you Greeks, oh you Romans, oh you Americans, all right? How will he deal with you given what he does to his own people, to his own beloved, to his own firstborn? If he does not spare Israel, why do we think he would spare us? Why do we think we somehow rate why why, why do we think that we would be exempt from the wrath of God when we become the biggest idolaters on the planet? All right? So if he treats his people this way, Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. It doesn't stop with the house of the Lord. It begins with the house of the Lord, and the rest of us better look out, all right? And as a Gentile nation, pay heed to the God of righteousness and the God of truth. And we have uh, Jeremiah as the perfect prophet to deliver a message like this, because he was called as a prophet to the nations, which I stressed uh, in chapter 1, I've stressed a couple of times since then. And uh, I'll probably stress it a few more times between here and chapter 52. He's a prophet to the nations. In, uh, in some ways, a very unique way with respect to this. Gentile nations must always be mindful of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And, and my heart's desire is that you know this text so well, you don't have to turn there to tell me what it says. Because if you don't know what it says, that means you haven't turned there enough. That means that you're not yet, uh, it's not yet been pounded through uh, your skull in such a way, right? I will bless those who bless you. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is what every Gentile nation needs to have a handle on. This is such a prime emphasis that it can outrule, in my mind, it can outrule an awful lot in political considerations, in voting considerations, and so forth, related to, uh, you know, whatever. Some people are single-issue voters. Some people have 10 issues or 20 issues or a top five or what have you. All right? If you're only going to have a single issue, I think in my mind it comes from Genesis 12. If you're going to have two issues, it ought to come from Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. And then, if you're going to have three or more, then feel free to search the scriptures and find some other ones that might be there. All right? But these are such prime directives that are universal in scope. So the Lord said to Abraham Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this has been in effect ever since. It's still in effect to this day. It will stay in effect through the tribulation. It will stay in effect. It will be the standard of judgment at the sheep and goat judgment. And it will stay in effect through the the millennium. All right. Technically, it's still in effect in the, in the new heavens and new earth because it's eternal. It never expires. But in the new heavens and new earth, there won't be any unbelievers to have a problem with it, okay? There won't be any Gentile cursing of Israel in the thousand generations of the new heavens and new earth. But Gentile nations must always be mindful of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And so when I'm faced with elections and consequences, when I'm faced with who to vote for, question number one in my book is uh, who will bless the Jewish people and who hates the Jewish people? Who sides with the Jewish people and who sides with the, the Muslim terrorists? Uh, who is working to divide the land that God promised to Abraham? And these are questions I ask myself, see, particularly if we're dealing with what we're dealing with. All right. Also, Gentile nations are going to be judged as per their treatment of the Jews in the sheep and goat judgment. Don't be confused in Matthew 25. To the extent that you did to the least of these, my brethren. All right? And far too many people are blinded by their um, modern-day tunnel vision or whatever you want to call it. They think this has something to do with the church. It has nothing to do with the church. The church is long gone before the tribulation even begins. And so those who survive the tribulation that are being judged, the criteria is the Jewish people. When Jesus says, my brethren, he's speaking as a Jew to the Jewish people, warning the Gentiles about how they're going to be uh, evaluated after the, uh, in the victory tribunals after Armageddon, right? You think about Nuremberg as a victory tribunal after World War II. Well, the sheep and goat judgment is a victory tribunal after the uh, conquest of Jesus Christ in his second advent. Don't confuse things, all right? It's, it's unfortunate that, that Larkin and, and um, Ryrie and, and, and Schofield and, and probably uh, others I can name, um, they, they, they mistake things. They put, they put the uh, sheep and goat judgment on par with the judgment seat of Christ, Wrong. Judgment seat of Christ is for us in the church and it is an end-of-life evaluation. It is a post-mortem evaluation. And, and so it is given unto man once to die, after that the judgment. We live our lives, we die, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We get our rewards for all eternity. It's, an end of, it's a post-mortem judgment, right? Sheep and goat is not post-mortem. Sheep and goat is like a midterm. Sheep and goat is pass-fail, Sheep and goat tells tribulational survivors whether they're going to be millennial citizens or whether they're not really tribulational survivors. Because they're tribulational survivors, but they're being thrown into hell as unbelievers to start the millennial kingdom. And guess what? Those tribulational survivors that enter into the millennium, that become millennial citizens, like I say, that sheep and goat judgment, that's a pass-fail. And, and that, that's not an end of life. That's not a post-mortem evaluation. They're going to continue. They're going to become generation one in the millennium. They're going to produce babies and, and so forth. They will later die in the millennium. I'm convinced. They're going to die. And then when they're raised, for, uh, then they receive their post-mortem evaluation. Then they receive their rewards. Then they receive their crowns and their well-done good and faithful servant and so forth. So if you've never thought of it in this term, or if somehow you've always thought—and and I don't blame you, a lot of us do—think of the, I used to think of the sheep and goat judgment, like a judgment seat, as an end of life uh, evaluation. It's not. It's not a post-mortem judgment. It is. Uh, it is. A, it's a midterm. It's a pass/fail. It's all right. You may pass. You may enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the kingdom, or be cast into the fire. See. And then. Even they will be brought out of the fire to stand before the great white throne, and then be cast into the lake of fire. So that's a. If you have more questions on that, feel free to bring it up Wednesday night. I, I can explore. I'll have more time Wednesday night, and I can answer more questions, and we can we can uh, look at this closer. But that's Matthew 25. And too many people read Matthew 25 and, and assume that's the church in there. It's not the church. All right, the Olivet discourse is directed towards Israel in anticipation of the coming kingdom, Davidic throne, kingdom of Israel on the millennial earth. So we have the Gentiles. I'm rushing, I'm rushing. We're going to get through this. All right, now the Christmas message. Verses 15 and following. You know, Maybe 20 weeks ago or sometime back, I was thinking, hey... We might hit uh, Rama weeping for her children. We might hit Rachel weeping for her children. We might have Bethlehem babies on Christmas Sunday. And okay, I missed it by a few weeks, but here is we're close. All right. But here's Rachel weeping for her children. And it comes from Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are No more. Thus says the Lord restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. We're going to take this down through verse 20 before we put the points on the screen. Verse 17 There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me and I was chastened. Uh, I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are Yahweh my Elohim, my God, for I turned back. I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach in uh, reproach of my youth. You see the content of the repentance here? You see they're, they're, they're digesting the doctrine. They're, they're identifying with the will of God in this whole process. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord God. Surely goodness and mercy, right? I mean, it's all right there. How much of our hymnology comes from Jeremiah 31? I wonder sometimes. All right. And so we have uh, the promise here. Set up for yourself road marks, okay, because you're coming back. (laughs) You know, leave the breadcrumbs behind you. You're coming back. Don't forget how to get here, because you're coming back. And we have a uh, a great promise here. A delightful child. How could he forsake Ephraim? How could he forsake his firstborn. All right. Verses 15 through 20. Here's a message. Man, And we would spend weeks on this. We would digest this in a different class format than we presently have because there are facets of prophecy that are just mind-boggling in their expression and in their fulfillment. And uh, this is one of the better illustrations we have. We have some other ones. Uh, Hosea's got some good ones. We've got some other ones, but this one just jumps out at you because it's so Um, it's so explicit. It is spelled out in the Gospel of Matthew that this is a fulfilled prophecy in the murder of those babies in Bethlehem. All right? And that 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 is a fulfillment in addition to, of course, the literal fulfillment that is Second Advent. Right? We want to study this out. And we don't have time to do so today. (laughs) All right. Well, Joseph and Benjamin were Rachel's two sons. If Rachel is crying for her children, she has Joseph and Benjamin to pray for. Remember, Rachel was not a spiritual hero. Rachel was, uh, I suspect she was likely saved, but very selfish in her non-disciple status. She was an idol worshiper. She stole her father's idols. She lied to her father. She was bitter against her sister. Um, And when she finally did have a baby, she named him, give me another one. All right. She named him Joseph and Joseph is is a term for addition. And she, all, you know, she's not even happy with a baby she's given. She wants another one. And so God gives her another one, but that's when she dies. All right. And so when you're that bitter and selfish and praying for things for selfish reasons, uh, God may give you what you were asking for, but you don't have the capacity to enjoy it. And so she dies giving birth to Benjamin. And, uh, And thankfully, uh, with divine viewpoint, Benoni can be renamed Benjamin and and they can proceed. Thankfully, with Leah, the spiritually minded mother, the mother of the line of Christ, uh, training up these children in in a very powerful way. So Joseph and Benjamin were Rachel's two sons. So when we, we talk about the captivity of the northern kingdom, that's Joseph. When we talk about the captivity of the southern kingdom, that's Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was with Judah. And so with the captivities of the northern and southern Jewish kingdoms, we have a picture here that Rachel has now lost her sons. And Rachel can be weeping for her children. You can think of Rama, of course, as the staging ground for when the, when the, the Babylonians were, were chaining them up and, and hauling them off, and which it was. All right. We've got a lot of things to understand with respect to Rama. And uh, different things there, and so here we have a uh, the literal history of the Old Testament. as the northern kingdom was swept away in seven twenty two the southern kingdom is swept away in uh, in five eighty six, and we have Rachel now weeping for her two sons, all right as a metaphor, as a as a picture. So when Herod murders the infants of Bethlehem. This historical lament takes a new significance, all right? You can't know this is a prophecy until it's fulfilled and until Scripture tells you, oh, by the way, you remember that passage about Rachel weeping for her children? We have a whole new significance and a whole new appreciation for the plan of God as he unfolds it. And so in Matthew chapter 2, we have a a story here, and we know this. We'll be, uh, you know, thinking about this, I guess, in the coming weeks, the Christmas season approaches. I thought it was hilarious. Robbie Dean was talking last night about how he works very hard every September, October, November. He works hard to memorize Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. And I know where he got it from. He got it from Jim Myers. Jim Myers did this years ago. And uh, Jim Myers memorized Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 so that wherever he is, if he's ever called upon or if he's not called upon, Jim Myers can stand without a Bible in his hand and recite Matthew 2 and Luke 2 and he can give the entire Christmas story in any gathering, in any church, in any civic center, any public place. And it's a, it's a neat ministry and witnessing opportunity and, and so forth. So uh, so last night, Pastor Robbie Dean of West Houston Bible Church is telling this story. He tries to do it. And every year he tries to do it. He spends uh, September, October, November working on it. He's able to recite them in December. And by January, he's forgotten them <laughs> all you need. He's got to go back and do it again. And, uh, and so I can fellowship with him on that basis because my scripture memory is uh, only exceeded by my scripture forgetfulness in um, capacity for, for things of this nature. All right. But in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, the Magi had arrived from the east and they were following the star and the, the star of Bethlehem brought them here. And Herod says, well, you know, report back to me when you find out where this king is. I want to come and worship him. He's a liar. He wants to go kill him, right? He wants to keep his throne. And uh, so the Magi are warned, uh, don't go back to Herod. Go, go a different way. Verse 12 having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And uh, so they flee. And then uh, Joseph is able to flee. When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And and this is this is amazing, right? I mean, you have a baby just, you know, recently, uh and and if you have this newborn if you have this infant are you equipped right here right now could you flee tonight and live in a foreign country for the next two years you know do you have enough cash in your pocket to do that you know because you're not going to return back to wherever but see god provided the gold the frankincense and the myrrh they've got the wealth necessary they can live as expatriates and 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 do well so joseph took uh, got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for egypt and remained there until the death of Herod now this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the lord through the prophet out of egypt i called my son now pay attention to that if we had time we would camp on this for some time okay this comes out of hosea and when it was spoken in hosea it was not spoken as a prophecy it was spoken of as a historical comment in hosea's day they were referencing the exodus but unbeknownst to them, right, unbeknownst to Israel, but knownst to us, we have the New Testament. We have the Gospel of Matthew. And we find out that that verse in Hosea, which they all thought was historical, was also prophetic at the same time. See, we have explicit prophecies, we have implicit prophecies. We have stated prophecies, we have typology prophecies through shadows and typology. We also have unstated prophecies, or shall we call it, I call them sneaky prophecies. And I'm, I'm going to probably try to rename that only because sneaky prophecy doesn't seem very you know, distinguished or theological. But it's, it's, it's a sneaky prophecy. I'm going to find the Latin term for sneaky and, and call this sneaky prophecies. Because out of Egypt I will call my son is, uh, is a rewrite from out of Egypt, I called my son, right? And the Holy Spirit's free to do that because the Holy Spirit that wrote the Old Testament and the New Testament and to say, look, when when Joseph brings Mary and Jesus out of Egypt, we learn a whole new significance to what Hosea was talking about, talking preaching on the Exodus. Likewise, Herod kills all these babies, right? And it's another sneaky prophecy. What's Latin for sneaky? I'm gonna, I'll have this down before Christmas, okay? So when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and his, all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Remember, they're not in the manger anymore. They find him in a house. This is some two years after his birth or within two years of his birth. And uh, so if you've got a manger scene that has Magi in your manger scene, you've got a flawed manger scene, all right? Um, Magi didn't go to the manger, Magi went to a house. So, um, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. I didn't know it was a prophecy. Well, now you do. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. All right, and so here is a use of Jeremiah 31 that we would not have known. We would not have known. Israel would not have known. More importantly, the fallen angels would not have known, (laughs) okay? There's a lot that happens in the plan of God, things into which angels long to look. There's a lot that happens in the plan of God that he keeps withheld in terms of like the church, mystery doctrine, for example. There's a lot of things that he keeps unrevealed until he reveals it and then says, ha, look at that, aren't I great? And we look back with the hindsight of God's foresight and go, wow, thank you, Father. And it's a glory and it's a blessing. And it does so many things for us. It also, I think, answers a whole lot of critics and a whole lot of Bible haters and you know, Bible skeptics and God haters that accuse us of selectively cherry-picking prophecies in order to create self-fulfilling prophecies, in order to artificially manipulate things, and in order to uh, create a phony religion that we can claim is, uh, is is prophecy fulfillment. Well, ideas like this shoot that all to smithereens. All right, you know, and, and somehow we just manipulated, you know, and some of it's ridiculous anyway. How do, we, how do we artificially manipulate a pregnant virgin? You know, I mean, that's, that's tough to do. Um, and how do we get uh, the Romans on board with our conspiracy to, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a facetious argument anyway. But these sneaky prophecies bust that bubble wide open because God is busy fulfilling a whole lot of things that we didn't realize at the time were prophetic until he points us out and says, by the way, that was prophetic. You didn't know that was prophetic, but here it is. Prophetic. Aren't I great? And we just get humbled and say, God, you're great. All right? You're, you're absolutely great. And I suspect there's more even still that we don't know yet that we're going to learn in the millennium. When prophets in the millennium and animal sacrifices in the millennium begin to teach us new doctrine as it relates to the fullness of time, and we're going to look back and go, oh, that's what that was about. Say and so it takes on a new significance. And, uh, man, this is a powerful chapter for that. But I've got to teach the New Covenant before, uh, before communion. So let's go. Verses, uh, let's get to this next section. See, the time... Oh, wait a minute. I've got one more point here. What does Rachel's rant in Rama have to do with the baby boys of Bethlehem? <laughs> okay, well, I've already told you. Um, and maybe it's not fair to call it a rant, but I wanted an R word for crying. Rachel was weeping for her children. What does Rachel's rant in Ramah have to do with the baby boys of Bethlehem? Well, Matthew points his readers back to Jeremiah 31, where 21 and 22 promise, a virgin will encompass a geber. And boy, this is, this is puzzling. Here are some verses that have been mangled and misunderstood. And, 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 and frankly, they're, they're, they are... Um, Scholars like to call them uh, ambiguous, or they like to call them enigmatic. Enigmatic means, hmm. Uh, So set up for yourselves road marks, place for yourself guideposts, direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel. Look how many times he's calling them virgins. Uh, Return to these, your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? Remember, Israel was a harlot. Israel was a faithless wife. Israel was divorced. Israel was sent into captivity. Israel was one of the biggest harlots until Judah came along, and Judah became a bigger harlot. And so when you see all of their harlotries, all of their adulteries, all of their fornication, all of their faithlessness, for him to bring her back is powerful anyway. That's the Hosea doctrine of restoring the divorced wife. But he keeps calling her virgin. And that boggles our minds because our human experience is such that a non-virgin cannot be re-virginized, right? That when you lose your virginity, you're done. That's no, that's, it's, it's over. You're no longer virgin. But he calls her virgin. And there's several repeated virgin statements in this chapter. A virgin will encompass a man. A woman will encompass a man. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. But when we look at 21 and 22, this woman is a virgin. When we see some of this other language. And it's not just a man. It's not just a man, okay? And and sometimes this gets preached in strange things. But it's a geber. It's a mighty man. It's a warrior. It's a geber. As per Isaiah 9.6, as per Zechariah 13.7, these references to Christ as the mighty God, the Gebor El, the mighty God, Prince of Peace, or the uh, Geber that's found in, in Zechariah 13.7. Anyway, this takes additional work than we don't have time for this morning, but I think we've got a, a spectacular virgin birth allusion, not a not a direct statement, but an allusion to the virgin birth in context here with a woman will encompass a man. You know, if you think about it, every woman that's ever given birth, she's given birth to a baby, right? By definition. I've never birthed a baby, but my wife has, I've seen it. And every every baby that's ever been born has been a baby when they were born, except for Jesus, who was a baby when he was born, but not only a baby, of course. A child is given, a, a child will be born, a son will be given. Right? the preexistent God-man, the God, God, the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She gave birth to a, a baby, but as she held that baby, she's holding mighty God, Gabor El, right? Or El Gabor, I forget which. Uh, the, the Geber. She's holding the creator of the universe, right? That's the whole point to Mary, did you know? All right, and then you're holding, you're holding the king of the universe. You're holding the, the Geber, all right, you know, Nicodemus was, you know, how can a grown man return to his mother's womb? Well, there's a geber in the womb of the virgin, and he will be born, and he's going to save, and he's going to deliver. And there's a lot of things to pay attention to. All right, let's talk about the new covenant. We can teach the new covenant in 12 minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, you've got notes. you got notes in your bulletin. You're going to have notes here. I did a lot of cut and paste, but I improved upon those notes, and um, we're going to try to teach it comprehensively here, and simply, all right? And whenever we don't cover this week, we can come back next week, because some New Covenant principles come back in chapter 32 and come back in chapter 33. (laughs) And uh, those aren't Communion Sundays, and we'll have a little bit more time to slow down with some smaller, shorter chapters. The time of Israel's physical and spiritual restoration is described and it's through tribulation, by the way. And a new covenant is introduced. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, I mean, thirty-one thirty-one, right? Through 38. Finish the chapter. Um, let's look at this. Behold, days are coming. Let's back up. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. See, there's the battlefield name again. Yahweh Tzavayoth, the Lord God of the armies. Once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of the righteous, of righteousness, O holy hill. Um, they're not called this in the Old Testament, but they're going to have this name after second advent. Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with flocks, for I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this I awoke and looked in my sleep, was pleasant to me. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beasts. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. So everything that He did in tribulation, everything that He will do in tribulation, has a point. And the point is to build them back up, to restore them. They have to go through tribulation in order to, in order to uh, be established as a kingdom. In those days they will not say the fathers have eaten the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. There's a pretty popular proverb. Uh, Jeremiah records it, Ezekiel records it. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. See, a kind of habit forming for the Jews. Every generation of Israel has always blamed their fathers. (laughs) They've always blamed the preceding generations. Well, when it comes to the tribulation generation, this is it. Yahweh says, I'm dealing with you. And uh, you will either enter into the millennium or you will not. And you're not going to blame your fathers. You're not going to blame the patriarchs. You're not going to blame all the generations between Abraham and you. I'm dealing with you. And I will enter into judgment with you. And you're going to be gathered in the wilderness, and it's again pass fail. Israel will not all Israel is Israel. And the, the rebels will be purged. Unbelieving Israel will be cast into the same hell that unbelieving Gentiles will be cast into. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it's a physical restoration and a spiritual restoration. And then the new covenant can be introduced. Verses 31 through 38. So we have days are coming, days are coming. How many times do we see this in the book of Jeremiah? Days are coming over and over again. He preaches on days are coming. Fixing this prophecy in the eschatological fulfillment for a restored and reunified Israel and Judah. They were taken in separate captivities, but when he brings them back after Armageddon, it's the whole nation, all 12 tribes, the complete restoration of the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth including probably several don't even know they're Jewish. They're going to be brought back from the four corners of the earth, and they're going to be brought into the wilderness judgment. We focus on this. Days are coming. Days are coming in verse 27. Days are coming in verse 31. Days are coming in verse 38. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Now you'll notice in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It hasn't happened yet, but he said he will. It's like when Jesus said, I will build my church. It hadn't happened yet when he's speaking it. He says, on this rock I will build my church. The church is future when Jesus is saying those words in, in Matthew 16. The new covenant is future when Jeremiah is uttering these words, when Yahweh is uttering these words in Jeremiah 31. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Where's the church in that? Nowhere. It's the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then when it gets restated, it is the combined house of Israel in verse 33. The returned and reunified house of Israel. They're no longer going to be north and south. It's no longer going to be a, a 10 and 2 civil war of north and south. It is a unified kingdom of Israel, millennial kingdom of Israel, with Jesus Christ seated on the Davidic throne. And it's contrasted with Moses. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Notice the contrast is with Mosaic Mosaic Covenant. This is another line of argumentation that shows the church has nothing to do with this. Since the New Covenant is the improvement upon the Mosaic Covenant, we weren't party to the Mosaic Covenant, never were. Why would we be party to the New Covenant? Won't be party to the New Covenant. We are not now, nor will we ever be party to the New Covenant. It's with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And it's the replacement for the Mosaic Covenant, which we were never under. And so we have a fixed context for this: second advent of Jesus Christ, a restored and reunified Israel and Judah, specifically declared to be the replacement covenant for the obsolete Mosaic covenant. Hebrews eight. We look at Hebrews quite often with respect to these things because it's clear, and it's uh, after it's in the church age. It's written in the in the first century A.D. It's written in the Greek scriptures. It may be written to the Hebrews, but it's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek to the Greek uh, part of the Greek canon. And we learn that the uh, obsolete Mosaic covenant, whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear, right? Don't take that personally. I wasn't looking at anybody. I didn't say whoever. I said whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And that's Mosaic covenant. Now, that used to bother me. I used to hate that passage. It bugged me to tears. I said, that's stupid. I said, it's not ready to disappear. It done disappeared. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But see, I was reading that passage from my perspective as, as church, part of the body of Christ. From the Jews' perspective, it's still ready to disappear. They still operate under law through the tribulation. They still operate under law... Until Christ returns, and then they operate under kingdom law with the Sermon on the Mount. They operate. There's there's a whole different reality there, and so it's appropriate to say obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear, from a Jewish perspective, as they're getting ready to enter into their kingdom. From a Jewish perspective, they don't have the perspective you and I have in the church. Anyway, Hebrews eight verse six and verse thirteen. Oh my. Let me, uh, before I get to Hebrews 8, let's just pick up on the rest of this here in, in Jeremiah 31. Let's look at this whole covenant, shall we? De- uh, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the Mosaic covenant, which they broke, but this is the covenant, verse 33, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. They've got to go through tribulation first, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. All right, that's the first statement of the new covenant right there, 31 through 34. And then we have the guarantee. How can this covenant get broken? Well, Blow up the sun and the moon and the stars and then maybe you can kill the Jews. And and (laughs) This is Arnold Fruchtenbaum's sermon when he says how to destroy the Jews. You have to blow up the sun, the moon, and the stars and then God can be faithless in his new covenant promises. All right. This new covenant, it's a replacement for the obsolete Mosaic covenant. It is... um, accomplished here. It's accomplished after the tribulation. Don't be sidetracked by things like, well, forgiveness of sins and say, well, gee, my sins are forgiven. I must be part of this covenant. You're, you're guilty of a category error there in your logic. It does not follow, okay? It is non sequitur. Yes, your sins are forgiven, but you're not in this picture of, of this verse. This is Israel's sins. By the way, it's Israel's national sins that are being forgiven here, that they're being cleansed the law written on their heart. We don't have the law written on our heart. We have grace. There are a few... Paul likes to use this kind of language when he talks about his ministry to the Corinthians and uh, how they're part of written on his heart, but that's, that's a different metaphor. Might echo, but not, uh, not exact. All right. Hebrews 8. Now we can go to Hebrews. Hebrews 8. You know, we talk about high priest. Jesus isn't even qualified to be an earthly high priest. He's not Levitical. He's from Judah. You know, if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Um, But verse 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. So he's not a Levitical priest. That's fine because that Levitical priesthood is going away. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. I'm, you know, Unconditional I will promises are a whole lot better than conditional Mosaic law promises. <laughs> do this and I'll bless you, do that and I'll curse you. And well, they broke it. You know, they, they, were, they were in the process of breaking it before you could even get down off the mountain with the tablets in hand. They're building a the golden calf and they're fornicating and doing all that at the bottom of the mountain. Moses comes down with the tablets and smashes them. No, no, this new covenant is enacted on better promises. And then uh, verse 13, he said a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. That's not Davidic, that's not Abrahamic, it's Mosaic, see? That's what's obsolete, becoming obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. And everything in these chapters is contrasting the Levitical with the new covenant. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And we just saw he's a better mediator. It's a better covenant. It's an on better promises. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Put it in this order. Lock it into your thinking. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And are we in Moses or are we in Christ? We're in Christ. Thank you. Members of the church are in Christ. Therefore, what are we? We are called servant ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.6, the only New Testament passage that connects the church with the new covenant, there it is, and people misapply it, misread it, misapply it. We're not party to the new covenant. We are ministers of the new covenant, servants of the new covenant in Christ. He's the mediator. We're in him. The word there is the same word for deacon, by the way. And that's us. We're not party to it. It's like being invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I don't want to be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I'm the bride of the Lamb. I'm not receiving invitations. The bride, doesn't the bride issue the invitations? Okay. We're not party to the new covenant. We're in Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant is between Yahweh and Israel. The New Covenant will be inscribed upon hearts rather than on tablets of stone. Again, that's a Mosaic contrast. Moses brought down tablets, smashed them and had to make new ones. In the New Covenant, kingdom law is going to be written on their heart. They'll be given a new heart. Ezekiel 11:19, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Now, I'm glad we're getting to this and then we're spilling over into communion time, but that's okay because this is communion doctrine. The new covenant will provide for spiritual knowledge of the Lord and a national forgiveness of sin. You know, we have, uh, it says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is referencing the nation of Israel and their role as prophets, their role as teachers to the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. The spiritual knowledge they're provided. We're provided a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we still have to study to show ourselves approved. We just don't sit under a tree and absorb some spiritual knowledge, right? That's not how our gifts work. I loved what Robbie Dean was saying last night. The spiritual gift of pastor teacher is a communication gift, it's not a comprehension gift. <laughs> all right. You don't just automatically know all the doctrine in the Bible because you're a gifted pastor. You gotta study. You gotta dig it up. But there is a knowledge imputed. We see in Jeremiah 31: 34. Well, we previously saw it in 24 seven. It's also spoken of in Isaiah 11 nine, Isaiah 5413, and Habakkuk 2:14. See, I don't read minor prophets, so well, no, you better start. They're all in agreement here with these other prophets. And it's also a national forgiveness of sin. That's huge, too. Remember, God's dealing with them as a nation. He sends them into captivity as a nation. He restores them as a nation. The forgiveness of sins here is Israel as a nation. It has nothing to do with you and me as unbelievers and sinners that believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Okay? And if you can can separate that, you're, uh, you're ahead of the game. And if you can keep that separated as you read what Jesus is doing here in the upper room, you're ahead of the game because every covenant requires blood the new covenant requires shed blood the new covenant requires shed blood now just because it has not yet been applied to Israel yet understand it has been shed that blood was shed when Jesus Christ went to the cross so if you're still in hebrews that's great because I'm going to take us across now to hebrews 9 hebrews 9:15 9, through 22 He is the mediator of a new covenant. We saw that in chapter 8. So that since a death has taken place, and it's not an animal, it's not blood, not his own, it's his blood, it's his death. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Is that us in the church? No, we weren't under that first covenant. This is the national rejection of Israel. The national sins of Israel. Under the first covenant, those who have been called the calling of Israel, not our election, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is the new covenant to Israel. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be death. Okay, the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Okay, if you make out a last will and testament, they don't execute that until you're dead. <laughs> and then they execute it because you can still change it while you're still alive but once you're dead you're dead and then it's executed and here it is well jesus died guess what the blood's been shed all right uh verse 18 even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood for when every commandment had been spoken by moses look at this verse 19 is so beautiful And when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying to them, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. This is the blood of the covenant. And he's quoting here, goes back to Exodus 24, 8. Behold, this is the blood of the covenant. What did Jesus say in the upper room? Behold, this is the blood of the covenant. Matthew 26, 28. All right? It has nothing to do with you and me believing in Jesus, getting eternal life, being saved. It has everything to do with the blood of the covenant, the new covenant with Israel. Understand, Jesus did so much more on the cross besides our redemption. Yes, the blood of Christ. Yes, the spiritual death of Christ purchased our redemption. Yes, it's not the only thing it did. It also provided for the ratification of the new covenant with the nation of Israel. It also provided for the cleansing of the heavenly temple. Jesus did at least three things. The blood of Christ was sufficient for at least three things on that cross on that day. Our salvation, human redemption, right? Israel's, the, the ratification of the covenant for Israel, is the second thing, and then the cleansing of the heavenly temple, the third thing. And maybe more. I'm considering additional impact. All right. The new covenant will require shed blood and a rod of application. And I've got to close here because I'm over time. But that's okay, I'm already preaching communion, right? Um, the blood has been shed, but the blood has not yet been applied. Ezekiel 20 in verse thir- uh, 37. See, unlike human redemption, which can be applied immediately... Israel's national placement under the under the covenant requires a rod, and we see this in Ezekiel twenty when Israel is brought under the rod of the covenant. they're not under the rod of the covenant yet they will be when he regathers them and he brings them under the rod ezekiel twenty and verse thirty seven I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. This happens in the wilderness, verses thirty-four and following. He brings them into the wilderness, and he enters into judgment with the Jewish people. So the blood's been shed, right? Are we clear? If not, I'll preach it a little bit more as we take communion. Let's pray, Father. I thank you for this day, our time. It just flies by, Father. But I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the power. Of, uh, of everything. Father, the living and abiding Word of God and make it come alive in our thinking. Make it come alive for our application. Thank you for being so faithful. Father, Israel's rebellion didn't thwart your plan for Israel. Adam's sin didn't thwart your plan for Adamic humanity. Our failures don't thwart your plan for our lives. Father, you are so faithful. Thank you for that faithfulness. And Father, it's just a, it's, it's a blessing. Thank you for the privilege we have to, uh, to walk this walk. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.